Once we get a sense of what is so powerful in the art of classical Indian dance, we can understand why the Guru Shishya tradition is critical in carrying on and preserving the dance. Tulsi had an epiphany at the age of 10. He knew he was unusual as a male studying the oldest classical dance tradition in India, but that was almost incidental as the student finally understood the art itself. Tulsi writes, I remember vividly the exact moment on a hot day in Madras in 1977 when the dance I had been learning for months came alive for me at the age of 10. Seated on a mat facing my guru, I was scared. It was the one time I was learning one-on-one -on -one from him without the protective buffer of my classmates the very first time. I watched as he held his left palm open, simulating a lotus leaf, and wrote on it with an imaginary quill. The letter was read, reread, then folded with care. My guru made a beautiful, beautiful image with his fingers. Its petals were forced open, and the letter concealed within before the flower closed. The letter writer, a girl pining for Shiva, searched for a messenger and handed the lotus to her. That day, as I made an imperfect lotus with my hands, much smaller than his, something expanded in me. Encapsulated in that moment, in that thatch roof cottage, something marvelous had occurred, something that had no reference to my daily life. A story narrated by my guru's eyes, this face that changed from the heroine to the god Shiva to the pink lotus to friend, all with ease. These different expressions reached into me, made me feel each one of them. The hidden message glowing brightly within the lotus bud of my fingers, I was taken captive forever by the possibilities of what can be conveyed to the audience emotions, images, through the performer's art. Words of Tulsi Badrinath in the volume titled Master of Arts, A Life in Dance. What Tulsi learned was experiential, embodied, subtle, and almost resistant to learning from a dance treatise. So, for centuries, Masters have modeled for their students, worked with them on the subtleties of gesture, facial expression, footwork, rhythm, and all the rest, in service of conveying a story, an emotion, and something more that is intangible, indescribable perhaps. And yet, classical Indian dance is not being preserved in a glass case. The performers, choreographers, teachers, students are all reacting to the world of the 21st century. So artists are finding ways to preserve the tradition and yet speak freshly to people of our time. That important effort and efforts like that in other arts are being celebrated here in northeastern Pennsylvania. The Everhart Museum in Scranton will partner with the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts, an aspect of the PCA's Folk and Traditional Arts Initiative, and the partnership will catalog artists working in this region who are carrying on traditions and passing them on. In addition, 
the artists who are rostered will present for us and for students around the region. Sujata Nair Muloth is an internationally celebrated performer, choreographer, and teacher who has been selected as a rostered artist in the initiative, and she will be featured this Sunday afternoon in an online presentation by the Everhart. It is at 2 o'clock. We had a chance to speak with her by phone about her art, what drew her to this art, and what makes it special. The dance that I have trained in and that I teach students today is called Bharatanatyam, and it is the classical Indian dance. So just like you have classical ballet here in the West, it is the equivalent of that in India. So it is, as opposed to folk dancing, it is a classical form of dance. And this is really ancient, and how we know uh, about, you know, how long it's existed is from certain literary works, which dates back to the first century CE. And in those works, they describe this dance in detail. And, you know, they talk about the costume, the repertoire, uh, the stories that are retold through the dance and all of that. And this treatise also says that this dance has been around for many, many years. So although we don't know exactly how old it is, we definitely know that it is at least 2,000 years old, which makes it a very old, ancient art form. Now, this dance form actually started in the temples of South India as a part of the daily ritual of the temple. So if there was a morning prayer service, there would be a morning performance. And if there's an evening service, there would be another performance to accompany it. And the temples were constructed in such a way that there was a kind of a stage, uh, which is actually made of concrete. And this was positioned right outside the main sanctuary of the temple. So when the dancers performed there, it was as if they were offering their art to the divine, to the universe, if you will. That was the, the origin of the dance form. But of course, over the 2,000 years, you know, many, many changes took place. Empires rose and fell. Wars were fought. Some were lost. Some were won. Religious influences, cultural influences, all of that, you know, made its way into the Indian society. And all of that influenced this art form that was so carefully preserved within the precincts of the temple. But in the 1930s, there was one woman by the name of Rukmini Devi, who, well, there's a very interesting story about her, and she brought the art form out of the temple and into modern-day auditorium. And so today, it is a secular art form that can be learned by anyone, it could be performed by anyone, it could be performed anywhere, and it is a totally secular art form, which is there for everyone to enjoy. And uh, today, you can find performances of this dance form in different parts of the world, in all the different continents. And today, it is flourishing in so many different homes, and not just in its original home, that is the temple. And in fact, in its original home, it is no longer performed. So if you go to a temple in India today, you will not see these temple dances because that tradition has been discontinued. 
And so that's where we are now. And this is the traditional ancient art that I was lucky enough to learn. And when I moved to the United Kingdom and later to the United States, I was able to practice it. And more importantly, I was able to teach it to the next generation so that the art may be preserved for many, many years. What was it, Sujata, that attracted you? Was it a strong, gripping pull to this? Actually, I would say yes. From a very early age, you know, I was very, very interested in learning this dance form, in dancing and doing anything that involved movement and dance was something that I uh, was interested in. But what got me interested in this specific classical form was because not only was it just pure movement, but there was also the storytelling aspect. And so, you know, you got to do a little bit of theater, you got to do a little bit of acting, facial expression, as well as body movement. And that really appealed to me because, uh, you know, it, it was something, it was a form of communication, if you will, with the audience. And uh, that was something that really got me interested in the art form. Now, you studied with masters, did you? And is that the best way to learn? Uh, yes. Traditionally, uh, this art form was taught in the temples by the traditional masters. And so the children would go and live in the temples, and then they would learn the art from a very young age. And of course, once the temple tradition was discontinued, then the teachers established institutions of their own and began to teach it to, you know, the students who wanted to learn. Even though maybe the structure or uh, the venue of learning had changed, the structure still continues even till today. So we basically, it's a form of teaching from the teacher who is known as the guru to the student who is known as the shishya. And so this tradition, which is called the Guru-Shishya tradition, is continued even till today. And we don't really give out notes. We don't, well, there are certain books that you could refer to, but the instruction is entirely done by the word of mouth and by direct demonstration. So that part of the tradition is still continued. Uh, but of course, the, the institution has changed, the buildings have changed, the teachers have changed, but the core element of teaching still remains the same. You spoke about being attracted to the storytelling nature of the dance. What would be the nature of a story that you would be telling in a traditional piece? Divine figures or mythological stories? Well, typically because it started in the temples, so it was natural that the main songs and the themes were based on the Hindu religion and Hindu mythology. So most of the storytelling pieces that I had learned and I had performed were from Indian mythology. But many of these stories are timeless, and they deal with human emotions. They are basically, the story is there to communicate the emotions or the ideas that are a part of the mythological story, the fabric of the mythological story, if you will. So, uh, yes, it would be uh, basically a story from Indian mythology. 
And so it is all of the things that you have cited, the gesture, the facial expression, I guess the movement of your feet, costume, that all feeds into the telling. And is there a kind of language or vocabulary of gesture, for example? Yes, there is. There is almost an entire, there are chapters and chapters of uh, or movement vocabulary in that there are different hand movements and different gestures. And each of these movements represents something. So there is a, there is a hand gesture for depicting a bird. There is a hand gesture for depicting a deer or an elephant or a tree or a flower or a, a butterfly or a bumblebee. So everything is very precise. And then when that is accompanied by facial expression, eye movement, body movement, and pure dance steps, the, the concept, the idea, or the emotion is communicated to the audience. So it's a combination of everything. But yes, it does start with the, the basic hand gestures, which are called hastas. And that forms the, the theory part of the Indian classical dance. You know, you have the uh, performance or the routines that are taught, but this is the theory that is taught. Like, you know, what hands or what hand gestures you can use for specific ideas or concepts. And what's the relationship then with what we've just heard you say about the gestures and facial expressions and movement and the music? Is the dancer interpreting the music? Is the music a partner? Are there ever times when the music is doing something other than the dancer? Uh, no, there isn't. Music and dance are part and parcel of the thing. If it's a lyrical piece, yes, we will be interpreting the, the meaning of the song that is there. So the song probably would be telling a mythological story, or a mythological story may have been converted into a piece of poetry by someone, and that piece of poetry would probably have been set to a specific piece of music. And in the Indian tradition, we have what is called the ragas, which are specific melodies. And all of these melodies have different moods as well. So you would choose the melody that goes with the mood of the specific poetry. So if it is uh, a war story, then you would choose a corresponding melody to set the song in. If it is a romantic story, then you would, you know, use a romantic melody to set the song in. So you have the melody is working with the essence of the poetry or the lyrics of the song, and the dancer is interpreting the story and the emotion that is associated with that specific story or poetry. And you were good enough to send us to songs so that we can share them. Could you introduce us to them? Uh, yes. The first one is a, is a little fast-paced piece, which is usually used for pure dance routines. So, you know, the pure dance aspect of Bhasanatyam or Indian classical dance would be performed with that first piece of music. With the second one, uh, you know, I talked about the ragas. So the ragas are based on the seven notes, just like you have the solfege in Western music. You know, you have the do, re, mi. We have sa, re, ga, ma, fa, da, ni, sa. We, we also have the seven notes. 
and then those are woven in different combinations to produce specific ragas. So the second piece is a raga piece, where those notes are played in a specific order to create a specific melody. So they are representing two different aspects of the dance. In learning what you're explaining to us, it's, it's important for the dancer to communicate the story and the emotion. Is beauty part of the aesthetic experience of viewing what you do as a dancer? Yes, yes. And that is the, what shall I say, that is the self-expression of the dancer. So, you know, when a dancer is taught something, they are taught within the strict format of the movements, whether it be the hand gestures, or the, the use of space on the stage, or the pure dance movement. Now, that will never change. But you will see a difference from one dancer's performance to the other. And so that is the individual something that that dancer injects into this specific format to give it a specific angle or a specific uh, beauty that you might find. So there is beauty in it because the melody flows into the, the story, it flows into the movement and all of that. But there is the self-contribution, if you will, of the dancer that provides that extra beauty to, the, to any performance. So that is the self-expression of the dancer. We read that you have created dances of your own as a choreographer and they are using the elements of the tradition that you've just laid out for us. But in what way are you making them not only your own, but dances of our time? You know, I believe that for any art form to survive, it has to adapt to the changing times. And this Indian classical dance has had to face a very big change in that it has completely moved away from its traditional home to a completely different culture. And in order to survive here, I feel that it needs to not forego any of its basic elements, you know, the basic, uh, basic format or its basic technique, but it has to adapt in some way in order to make a home for itself in this new space. And so what I usually do is that I take music that is from the specific region or for example, I have worked with band music, Western band music. And what I've done is that I've picked a piece of music that I feel would work with the movements of my dance form, and I have choreographed a piece of piece from there. So what I've created is, is not that I have changed anything from the traditional style, but I have brought in a fresh and new idea or angle to it so that it is, it's not different. It is part of this culture, and it is a part of the traditional Indian culture as well. And also, I do this because a lot of my, in fact, all of my students are uh, a part of the American culture. They might be from the Indian heritage, some of them, and some of them are from different parts of the world. But they are very much a part of the American culture. And so this choreography would actually represent them because they are the dancers who have are traditionally Indian and are American as well. And this piece is traditionally Indian 
and it is a part of the American culture as well. And so in creating these, I hope I am creating a new authentic style that is stronger. And if it is stronger, it will definitely survive. And that's just the goal of the Folk Arts Program at the Everhart. It's what they hope for, the preservation of the tradition as you've laid it out for us, the ancient tradition, but also the sense of using the tradition in a way that keeps those elements alive, but also can make it connect with us today in our own experiences. And that's just what you've laid out there. Yes. I mean, that is my, that's my hope. And I, I've done quite a few pieces based on that. And I have also created, you know, I've organized a performance where I've had dancers from, from other parts come in who have created works like that. For example, one was based on uh, Maya Angelou's poem, and it was beautifully choreographed. Now, that is something that is so much a part of this culture. It is a part of who the, the performers are because they are a part of this culture as well. And at the same time, it is being given a new life in a different form. And that, I think, is interesting, and it will definitely help the art form to, to survive and, and even flourish. And so, as part of this Everhart program, you are a rostered artist, and they're hoping you will give programs to students in schools. And you must do that all the time. In any case, what do you like about that, and what kinds of questions do you get? I'm sure there's an exciting exchange when you go into a school. Yes, yes. And I think the most rewarding part of that is that initially everyone sees the art and me as someone different, someone you know, who may not be a part of their culture. But at the end of the session, they are so interested in what I have told them and I've explained to them. And and when they realize that, you know, there are so many things that are similar between ballet and Indian classical dance. You have the plie and you have the demi-plie and you have all those positions. And then I explain that dance is a form of of experimentation that people did with, with movement and body movement. And we have, you know, the same number of muscles and, and, I don't know, whatever else, bones and things in the body. And there are only so many different movements that the human body can do. And that is why you find so much of similarity between the dances in different parts of the world. So when I explain things like that to them, they, they just realize that, yes, you know, it's not different. It's the same. It's, it's just you have to look at it with beauty uh, as something beautiful and as something that you can enjoy rather than, trying to look at it as something that is far, far different from, from what they know or what they have experienced before. And so that is very rewarding when, when I'm able to draw them in and they feel comfortable and they, they learn so many things. And then they start making comparisons themselves. And that is so much, you know, it's sometimes it's an eye-opener for them. And, and that really broadens their horizons and seeing that is very rewarding. <laughs> Sujata Neyramulov of Northeastern Pennsylvania, a performer, teacher, and choreographer who has trained in the Bharata Natyam style of Indian dance in New Delhi. As a performer, she has given recitals internationally, and she was recently appointed to the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts as a roster artist. And that's in connection with the Folk and Traditional Arts Partnership. That partnership 
in our area involves the Everhart Museum in Scranton and the PCA. And the goal is to sustain cultural and artistic practices rooted in the histories, traditions, and everyday lives of people in Lackawanna, Luzerne, Pike, Susquehanna, Wayne, and Wyoming counties. Part of the project is to identify traditional artists in the region and to help those artists in keeping their traditions and to create community access to the folk arts through presentations, performances, workshops, and other programs. There will be just such an outreach program this Sunday as part of the Second Sunday Folk Art Series at the Everhart Museum. It is virtual because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It begins at 2 o'clock this Sunday, April 11th, and it will feature Sujata Mayer Mulos, and she will talk about her art, and she will introduce us to some of the movements. So it's wonderful because it is a video presentation, and her teachers, she'll talk about the creative process and what she does with the pieces that are her own that she has choreographed yet in the style of. And so for more information on this program, which is free, you can check the website of the Everhart Museum in Scranton, everhart-museum.org, E-V-E-R-H-A-R-T hyphen museum.org. The Second Sunday Folk Art Series and it will be Sunday, April 11th, online at 2 o'clock with Sujata. And the program is centered on classical Indian dance.